Have you ever found yourself wandering through a bookstore or a library and totally taken just with the title of a random book on the shelves? A title that's weird or confusing or wild or simply eye-catching? I would argue that the book we are discussing today has one of those titles. It's called I Am an Artichoke and it was written by Lucy Frank in 1995. The title refers to a poem that main character Sarah wrote in school that she says speaks to the many layers of her personality. And yes, those layers are explored in the book. If you haven't read or heard of this book, keep listening. It was new to me, and I know it's new to many members of our SSR community, but I think this conversation is an extremely worthwhile one regardless. It explores ideas like the importance of thoughtful language and the degree to which YA authors have a moral responsibility to their young readers, topics that I believe are relevant to all book lovers. As you know, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, we have touched on these matters in the past, and this episode adds an additional important layer. See what I did there with layers? I'm going to keep the rest of this intro pretty minimal, as I think the conversation I have with my guest over the next hour really does speak for itself. But here's what you need to know. In I Am an Artichoke, an unhappy, sick-of-the-suburbs teenager named Sarah takes a summer job as a mother's helper, working for the Friedman family in New York City. She hopes that the gig will take her out of her boring life and give her the big adventures she's been dreaming of. But it doesn't quite happen that way. Instead, she finds herself smack in the middle of the Friedman's divorce and suddenly responsible for her young charge, Emily's eating disorder, which no one seems to be talking about or even acknowledging. The situation is high stakes and high pressure, and certainly not what Sarah bargained for. I am going to put a serious trigger warning on this episode, as much of it is focused on eating disorders, disordered eating, and body image, and the way these things are portrayed in this book and pop culture more generally. If these subjects hit close to home for you, please listen with caution. My guest and I share some of our own personal experiences with these topics as well, and I am so grateful to her for her vulnerability. Please note that I am including some helpful resources in the show notes for this episode, and I would encourage you to check them out if you or someone you love is struggling with an eating disorder or disordered eating. My guest today is Elise Bryant, who is the author of Happily Ever Afters and the forthcoming One True Loves out in January of 2022. She was born and raised in Southern California. For many years, Elise had the joy of working as a special education teacher, and now she spends her days writing Sunni love stories and eating dessert. She lives with her husband and two daughters in Long Beach, California. Learn more about Elise's work at www.elisebryant.com and follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Elise M. Bryant. I want to say another big thank you to Elise for joining me for this highly honest and, at times, highly challenging conversation. If you're not already, I would love to invite you to follow SSR on social media. You can find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter and by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community on Facebook. In May, the SSR Book Club is reading The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants and The Westing Game and there's still time for you to join us. Sign up for free at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or at the link in the SSR Instagram bio. The SSR Book Club is full of fantastic book-loving people, and we would love to welcome you for thoughtful discussion, nostalgic reflection, and warm and fuzzy online community. Did you know that you can support the podcast and independent bookstores just by shopping for books? I don't know about you, but shopping for books is pretty much my favorite thing ever, and if I can spread a little extra love by doing it, it's icing on the cake. 
To get started, visit www.bookshop.org shop SSRpod. At no extra cost to you, you can pick up all of the books on your TBR list there, and SSR receives a small commission in the process. All of the links in the recent show notes for the podcast, which you can find at www.ssrpodcast.com listen, will also lead you to the ssrbookshop.org storefront. I really appreciate your support, especially since SSR is an independent podcast that I run as a one-woman show. To that point, I want to shout out to all the SSR Patreon patrons listening to episode 144. You are helping me make this show a reality and making it easier for me to offer fun extras like the SSR Book Club for free. Thank you so much. If you are interested in supporting SSR via Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. As an SSR patron, you'll contribute a few dollars per month, as little as a dollar actually, in exchange for exclusive rewards, including input on book selection, SSR merch, bonus episodes, monthly online parties, monthly newsletters, reading recap videos, and more. I have a lot of fun with the extra content, and I would love to share it with you. Before I jump into this episode, let me remind you about what's happening at Libro FM. Libro FM has made it possible for you to support indie bookstores instead of giant corporations when you shop for audiobooks. The audiobooks you can get from Libro FM are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. There is really no downside. In fact, there's an extra upside. SSR listeners can cash in on a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Elise. Welcome to SSR. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Okay, so we were chatting a little bit already about this off mic. We both had like a crazy reading experience with this book, I Am an Artichoke by Lucy Frank. I'm personally still processing. I'm excited (laughs) to be able to process with you. And as I mentioned to you, this book was not at all on my radar before you mentioned it to me. So I'd love if we could start, we'll like ease into the craziness processing a little bit. Maybe you can share like why you picked it and if you had a personal connection to it. Yeah. Um, so when you when you first reached out to me about like what books we could talk about, this is one of the first that came to mind. And there were like, you know, there were some some right away that, you know, are more easily accessible, like Princess Diaries or Sarah Dustin or the Jessica Darling books. But this one, I remember so clearly getting it from the library as a kid. And I remember the title because the title is like, you know, <laughs> it sticks with you, right? But I could not remember really what the story was about at all. My AirPod fell out. 
difficulties it happens yeah um but yeah I can remember what I couldn't remember what the story was about at all and so that's why I really wanted to read it just to see why you know after all these years the story or this the title of this book stuck with me so much I've had books like that too of course now that we're talking about it none of them are popping immediately into my head I'm sure people who have listened to the podcast for long enough will remember some of them were like there are these books that I remember because I have this like very sensory memory of them like getting them from the library or like just opening them and smelling the pages and I remember the title but that's the only thing and then I've come back to them for the podcast and I'm like this is not at all like something that I would think that like subject matter wise would stick with me but it's just so weird how we like attach to these books in ways that like we as adults like can't quite understand exactly yeah because I remember so clearly getting it from the library you know like the the faded like white cover because I used to go every week and just get a whole big stack of these books but yeah this one (laughs) now that I've read it I'm like what (laughs) yeah I can't wait to hear like what you think maybe your kid self would have thought of it but um I will say it was really fun to get my copy of this book because it's very hard to track down I have a used copy that appears to have been the property of a middle school library somewhere and so it has like all of the stamps all over it and it has all of the records of like who checked it out throughout the 90s and the early aughts and it smells like a library book it has (laughs) that like very distinct like 90s library paper that just like brought me right back to that place and so I feel like the book itself was like part of the experience of reading it just because it I don't know it has like that um paper overboard cover and I don't know I love just the experience of holding it in my hands so yeah I had never heard of it the book was published in 1995 for context for listeners it was Lucy Frank's first book she went on to write seven more books um the most recent of which I believe was in 2014 and she's a really interesting author there's not a lot out there about her or about this book but I did discover that before she started writing full-time she worked as a vitamin pill shipping clerk an editorial assistant a children's clothing designer a low-income housing program administrator a budget analyst a mutual fund portfolio manager an employment counselor and the lab administrator for a neurobiology lab that studied mouse reproductive behavior. So she has like quite a fascinating history. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't know anything about her. So there's your fun facts. And when the book came out in 1995, it gained some like pretty significant critical acclaim. It was um, on Publishers Weekly Flying Starts list, which is an annual list that comes out and is a pretty big deal for debut Mm -hmm. authors. And other than that, like, as I said, it's not a book that like I came across very much as a kid, but I think the critics loved it. There are a lot of great reviews out there for it. I will include those that I found in the show notes for this episode. Um, But yeah, I had no idea that it was out there. I was young for it. So if it came out in 1995, I was in elementary school. So I would have come to it later on and it just never came across my uh, my little radar. I will echo um, my trigger warning from the intro because I just think it's really important with a book like this that I am completely transparent with listeners. Um, we're going to be talking a lot about eating disorders, body dysmorphia, disordered eating, body image in general. So that's just going to be a really unavoidable part of this conversation. So I will encourage anybody who will feel very sensitive to those issues to maybe like put a pause and and consider if you're ready to listen. Um, As a lot of listeners know, I have a history of disordered eating and of some body dysmorphia and those kinds of things. So that also like added to the way that I process this book in a really interesting way. So I'll let you know that ahead of time as it informs our conversation. But let's get into it. When we start this book, we are introduced to Sarah, who is 15 years old, 
She lives in the New York City suburbs. She just like hates her life in the most like, I don't know, stereotypically teen angsty kind of way. What were your first impressions of Sarah as you're getting to know her again? I like, so when I started the first chapter, that was more because it after the first chapter, the, the book changes significantly, you know, like the vibe of it changes. So reading the first chapter, I, that was what I remembered. That was like, you know, the kind of like, angsty kind of um, snarky narrator was what I remembered. And I, I, I think it makes sense that I, that, that made me understand why I connected with the book because the way she describes, you know, her life and her family and everyone, oh, what's the word she kept using? I think I wrote it down. Um, bland. She kept saying how like everyone in her family is so bland and she wanted, you know, this new life and this new adventure. And I think I, that, that's something I definitely connected with. Like I was always as a kid, like wanting to, you know, break out of my family and find some, some new story. So that, yeah. And you know what I was thinking too, I was, I was in elementary school when this came out. (laughs) I was was definitely in um, elementary school too. So I, I probably went from like straight from Harry Potter to this like one week so (laughs) yeah 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 I mean there are a couple of things that I would say that I connected to in Sarah I think her fascination with New York City and cities in general that was very real for me as a kid still very real for me I lived in New York City for nine years I only recently left I live in Philadelphia now I went to college in Washington DC like I've always wanted to be in a city or as close to a city as I could get and I grew up in the suburbs and so I loved any book that had even the promise of a teen like getting to venture into a city for the summer. Um, I think the other thing that really resonated with me was just this like promise of a summer experience. Like that was so real when I look back at my own teenage years, especially like I think there are a few summers, one in particular where I'm like, I, I can say now that that summer fully transformed my life. And I felt at the beginning of that summer that it was going to happen that way. And at the end, it really did. Um, And I think that that's an experience that you can only get when you're like 15, 16 or 17 years old. And I loved the idea that like Sarah was staring down the summer ahead of her and just like, I know that this is the summer that like everything's going to change for me. And I'm going to become like this new, better version of myself. Like I really Mm -hmm. connected with that part of her. And then I think that was something that I resonated with throughout the book where I was like, okay, this is this is a transformative time in her life. And it brought me back to that transformative summer in my own life. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, and I also just like couldn't help but LOL at the concept of like a mother's helper because I do feel yeah. like that's a phrase <laughs> from like American Girl magazine from like the early to mid 90s that I was like, oh, this is a job that you can get when you're like kind of young and that will give you some autonomy. But like the parents don't really have to trust you, you just kind of have to be around hanging out. And I <laughs> love that because I haven't heard that phrase in like a million years. It's true. And that's true. And the thing is, she is so young. I think so much of YA now skews older. It's like, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, but she's 15. And I I kept having to remind myself of that when I was reading, because a lot of the experiences that she goes through, it doesn't feel like something a 15 year old well, we'll talk about this, but it's not something a 15 year old should have to to do, you know? So I had to keep saying, oh yeah, she's 15, but it's true. Yeah. When you're, when you are that age, you think that summers can change your entire life. And that was probably something, that's probably why I, I picked up this book and read it because 
that's something I always wish for, like at the beginning of every summer, this is, you know, this is my time to be the new cool lease, you know? <laughs> well, I also just think there's just this like glamorous idea, especially if you read it when you were in elementary school or like even in middle school, like, oh my gosh, this 15 year old is going to yeah. get to go to New York City alone and like have <laughs> a job away from her family. And it is pretty crazy when you think about the fact that like this family, like not only was employing her, but she was living at their house. Yeah. Initially, the plan was that she was going to go home every weekend, which she doesn't end up doing. But I just think that if I'd read this as a kid, like it would have ruined me because I would have been like, mom, we need to find a way for me to go work as a mother's helper in New York City for a summer, even though I had like no interest in hanging out with small children. <laughs> I was like, This is the way that I'm going to go live my New York City dream. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that was just like mind blowing to me because it was probably like, like a degree you know Degrassi it's like a Degrassi episode totally. <laughs> like totally. seeing all this stuff happen that's probably what it felt to me because in like fifth or sixth grade or however old I was at the time yeah it seems pretty fabulous and Sarah is like so relatable that you want something fabulous to happen to her like I was rooting for Sarah from the beginning which is not true of all narrators or main characters especially in the books we've read from like the 80s and 90s I find that generally the books that we read that are like I don't know, a little bit more recent, I can more consistently root for the protagonist. But some of mm -hmm. these, you know, some of these protagonists from earlier decades are a little dicey. I was, I was all in with Sarah. I was like, yeah. I want her to have the summer that she wants to have. I am so here for it. So she gets this opportunity to go work as a mother's helper. Again, like shout out to American Girl Magazine. Like <laughs> this is how you get a job when you're 12. Definitely had that written down somewhere in like my business plan for my life, which didn't happen. <laughs> she gets this opportunity and I don't even, I don't remember if we find out how she got the opportunity. It's funny in the age of social media because like she would have gotten it on like care.com or something, but mm -hmm. it must have been like a friend of a friend of a friend. And she goes goes in to meet the family and the family is Mrs. Friedman and her daughter like in her I think in her brain Sarah thought that it was going to be this like you know big fabulous family and she gets there and it's not at all what she expects but I wanted to share one quote from their first meeting Sarah thinks to herself if I was looking for these people to improve my life I'd come to the wrong place <laughs> I felt mad at them for not being the family I was hoping for a basic father, a mother who is like your basic mother, only nicer, and two cute basic little kids. But I also felt upset and sad for both of them. And that made me even madder. So those are her first impressions of the family <laughs> that she's chosen to work for. What did you think about Mrs. Friedman, aka Florence, Never Flow, and Emily when you got reacquainted with them in this book? I remembered Emily for sure. When I went back, yeah, that was one of the things that that was very clear to me is her Emily and her relationship with Emily, I did not remember Florence, at least in the way that she described her, you know, um, I had more empathy, I think, for Florence reading it than I did the first time, because she's definitely not, she's not a good character, you know, she is a villain, she is a narcissist, she, you know, it, she, there's some child abuse going on there for sure. But I think when I read it the first time, she was just like straight bad. But reading it now as an adult, I can see like, you know, the mental illness there that has like led to her being the way she is, you know, because I think it was more like, you know, bad, but also kind of funny before. Like, you know, look at this old lady who is like so out of touch with her kid. And now reading it now, I was like, yeah, like this is so this is I feel sad for this woman <laughs> that she has gotten to this place that yeah, there's just more nuance there, I guess, than I could have had when I was 
in fifth grade. Yeah, I think when we read about like quote bad parents when we're mm-hmm. kids, it's so one dimensional. It's like this yes. is like the mean mom or a mean dad, and it's almost like a caricature. Like it's something yeah. out of like, Peanuts, Charlie Brown's like. Womp, 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 womp. like this mom is just terrible or like roll doll like you yes. know like that like the evil parents of Matilda I think I read it like that before and it was definitely now being in my 30s having my own kids it was definitely a very different experience yeah because as an adult you're like okay this person is still terrible like still mm-hmm. very problematic but you're able to understand like some of the shades of gray, not that there are shades of gray in some of the issues that we're talking about, but you can see like the textures to these people and maybe how they ended up where they are and some of the demons that they're fighting. And I don't have kids of my own, but I do think that like I am in my thirties too. And I, you know, I know people who are starting to become parents and even getting to know my own parents better. Like you start to understand that like people don't come into parenthood perfect. You know, they Mm -hmm. don't come into parenthood without their share of baggage, without their share of like emotional challenges. Like, so you have to navigate the chapter of your life where you're raising children with all of those things in mind. And so it is kind of interesting to meet these like, quote, like bad parents again as a grown up reader and to realize like, oh, okay, so they're not cartoons. And that sort of makes them worse because they're not like they're actually humans living in the world doing potentially terrible things to their children and like being highly irresponsible parents. Mm -hmm. But it also like you can't help but have a little bit of empathy. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, like I said, I think I laughed probably. I like I remember it. I don't remember being this book being so serious, like at all. (laughs) And so when I read it, I was like, whoa. (laughs) But you know, because I I thought that she was kind of silly with her quizzes because she gives these, um, she writes like the quizzes for Cosmo. And I remember that, but I didn't remember like the emotional abuse and the narcissism and all this stuff that made this book so much heavier than I think I was capable of like comprehending then. Well, Sarah walks into like quite a wild situation. Like Mm -hmm. she is entering this family's life at a really fascinating turning point. So We don't know exactly the timeline, but it seems as though the Freedmans have divorced very recently. Like, I don't even know if they're divorced yet. They're separated. Mr. Friedman, Elliot, has moved out recently. Um, And so Florence and Emily, her 12-year-old daughter, are still dealing with that in, like, very real time. And then there's a son who we don't really know anything about. And I actually, like, as I was putting my notes together to talk to you, I was like, I think I kept... I kept waiting for some big revelation about the sun because I think that's what I'm trained to do as a reader now. Yeah, where I'm like, yeah. There's like a secret. Like the sun is like the key to something. Like there's something like even darker than what's on the surface, like lurking below. And like when I find out what's going on with the sun, I'll know like what's actually happening. And we just like, I think he's like away at school and I think he's a really good musician maybe is what's coming to mind. But like, that's it. Like we never hear from him. We never hear about him again. Okay. Can I tell you though? So I remember David, this the older brother, and I was waiting for him to come back too. And he never did. And so I looked it up because I was like, I swear there was a whole other story of Sarah and David and like a, a, a romance. I, oh. I like I remember this whole thing. And so when I finished the book, I was like, wait, this isn't the book that I thought we were gonna read. And I looked it up and there's a the second book is called Will You Be My Brussels Sprout? Oh, and yeah, I that. yes, and it's it's Sarah like going back 
to live with them again after the whole crazy yeah plot weird choice, book, Sarah, weird choice. yeah so she goes back and there's like it's the whole book is about them and that is what I thought I was suggesting we would read and that's why I was like very blown away when I because I remembered the stuff with Emily but I was like I didn't remember that being the whole book and it's because I thought I don't I guess I like they melded together in my head <laughs> well if you ever want to come back and read yeah. book, you know where to find me it's so funny that I can see how like that title would stick out there's a book that I read when I was a kid called the broccoli tapes oh okay <laughs> And I, it's such like a specific kind of random title. And I, I don't really remember anything about the book, but the title has stuck with me forever. Yeah. And it's so funny because about two years into starting the podcast, somebody DM'd me about it. I was like, finally, somebody else knows about this book. But it's weird. We have these like vegetable title books. <laughs> it was like the trend. <laughs> yeah, it was just the trend back then. <laughs> That's so juicy though, that she ends up dating the older brother. And I think it was like, an abusive relationship I'm but I don't know I don't know if I'm really remembering all of this correctly because clearly I don't have a very good memory because I don't remember half of what happened in this book well we just we're just gonna take a little bit of a different turn it's just not yeah. a ruin so we yeah. can always come back we'll do a part two um so yeah we don't meet David I was waiting for some bombshell that never happened yeah. although you just shared one with me and then there's Emily who's the 12 year old daughter and when we meet her she is on an exercise bike that she will not get off. Um, Sarah walks into the apartment to meet the family. She's like all excited to meet the kids and Emily will not get off the bike. Um, she's wearing all white. She always wears all white. Her mother in contrast is like constantly in these like big, loud, crazy patterns. And yeah, Emily is just like very focused on the bike. She doesn't really want to interact with Sarah at all. Um, she doesn't have a lot to say. And this like causes a couple of questions for Sarah, but she sort of like shelves all of her concern. She's like, this is not what I thought it would be, but like, I'm just going to do it because I need to get away from my own family. And she agrees to take the job. She has her own room. She's going to go home to her parents on the weekends. Like she's like, great. I have this range. It's going to be great. And it becomes even clearer pretty quickly that things are not what they appeared to be um, mm -hmm. in sort of the original job description. So first of all, Sarah is spending a lot of time just with Florence because Emily will not come out of her room. She won't get off her exercise bike. And I thought that one of the lines that was really telling about what Florence's real motives for hiring a quote mother's helper really are was she says, I need someone who can get Emily interested in doing things. She used to have so many interests, dancing, sports. And it just like that line broke my heart. Because it just gives you this picture of like who Emily was in some mm -hmm. mysterious before time. And there's references to this later on in the book as well. Florence is throwing a big party and she like really wants Emily to invite her her friends. And Emily's like, those aren't my friends anymore. Like, and, and we get this hint that she is become sort of reclusive. Like she doesn't want to hang out with girls her own age, the girls that she hung out with for years. And like Florence seems to really want her to be this older version of herself, which is, I think, part of why she's bringing Sarah in because she's like, oh, like you'll get her into these old things. Like you'll get her distracted from this other thing that's bothering her, um, mm -hmm. which Florence really doesn't want to put a name to. And we're clearly talking a lot about the exercise bike. Emily has some disordered relationship with exercise, but it doesn't take long for Sarah to realize that she also has some really dangerous, disturbing, problematic issues with the way that she eats or doesn't eat. Um, and I want to be really sensitive about the way that I talk about this. There are words that I use to describe like my experiences with this that I'm sure are different than the words that other people would use that are different than the words that probably like 
clinical professionals would use. So I, I'll share upfront that like, I think sometimes when you're really close to something, like it's almost harder to talk about it. Um, and I'll share briefly that like my experience when I was in the middle of like my disordered eating is like, I didn't really know, you know, it took me many years really until I was an adult because it was such a secret. It wasn't something that I shared with anyone. And thankfully in my case, it was not um, to the extent of requiring treatment. But for many years, um, I struggled with pretty compulsive disordered eating habits that have come back off and on throughout my adult years. And I think when I was in it as as a teenager, I thought that it was just like quirky. I was like, I'm so weird. Like these are weird things that I do with food. And I'm just so strange about working out. Like this is so crazy. And I almost saw that reflected a little bit in the way that Sarah was perceiving Emily's behavior at first. Like like, oh, like this is, and she, this, she's so quirky. Like these are, these are such weird habits. And it's almost like that's how Florence like wanted to perceive it as well. Like, oh, you know, I know this isn't great for her, but like, this is just quirky. Like she's just going through a weird time. So yeah, I don't, it was sort of interesting just to watch the way other people were processing what she was going through. And Florence is just like, so not ready to admit what's going on. What did you think about like that whole situation? Like the relationship that Florence has not only to Emily, but to what Emily is managing? I mean, it was so frustrating as an adult to, um, to see that because it's neglect, you know, it's terrible parenting. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this too. I wasn't planning on talking about this, but hearing you being so open and vulnerable, it makes me, I guess, feel comfortable doing that. But I've have I have a history of eating disorders too. Not when I first read this book too. It wasn't until later in life when I was in my mid to late teens, early 20s. I had um, an eating disorder. I had treatment I, um, when, I was in my, when I was a teenager. And so it's frustrating. Yeah, it was very frustrating reading this because you see, the, you see Florence so clearly not doing what is best for her kid, you know, just being so... Um, afraid to put terms on something that needs to, you know, and then you see Sarah coming into the situation. And yeah, she, she but it, again, I had to remind myself, she's 15, you know, it's, it shouldn't be her job to come in here and save Emily, which is very clearly what 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 Florence expects her to do. She expects her to save Emily and parent both Emily and Florence through this situation, uh, which was very frustrating <laughs> to be reading that. But yeah, um, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm having like <laughs> trouble putting no. it into words right now, but it was just why this book stuck with me for so mm-hmm. long. And I probably, honestly, if I had remembered the whole eating disorder sub, like not subplot, but plot, like the whole plot of the book, I probably wouldn't have suggested this for this um, podcast because it's not something that I really talk about. Cause like you said, it's something that it stays with you forever. I'm definitely in recovery now and I have been for a very long time and I feel um, very healthy with where I am now. But reading this book, it just, yeah, it brought me back to a, a place where I was in my teens. And it was it was difficult to see all of the, the diet culture and the fat phobia and all of these things that like, you, you hear Sarah saying it in the book and it, she thinks it's just like part of, it's just, it's normal. It's part of the culture, you know, how she like, the way she talks about Florence, because Florence is fat, is terrible. You know, it's, it's, it's terrible. And the way she talks about food with Emily, in a way to try and help her, I, I'm reading it as someone who has, has recovered from an eating disorder. It was like, that's not gonna help, you know, but again, how does a 15 year old has been thrown into this situation? How is she expected 
to help. And also reading, so reading the book, it was, it made me wonder about the author, Lucy Frank, and like why she wrote this story, because it's, it's like adjacent to like, the narrator of Sarah is like adjacent to what the actual story is, because the whole book is about Emily and her, her eating disorder and her relationship with her family and how they are causing so many of these things you know and not caring for her and I kept wondering while I was reading like what is going on in her head because we're you know we're in we're in Sarah's head who's just watching it she's like an observer and yeah I I, I spent the whole time thinking like I want to know what I, I would have loved to read a book through Emily's point of view you know what I mean totally well first of all I want to thank you so much for being vulnerable and for sharing that. I really appreciate your honesty. I know that it's a really hard thing to talk about. It's a weird thing to talk about. It's a weird thing to put words to. It's such a personal experience and it's different for everyone. So I just want to say that I really appreciate you sharing. Um, And I understand how reading this book may have been triggering. Um, And I am so happy that you're in a healthy place. And I I'm sorry that this book was triggering. Um, no, it's, it's my fault. Like I should have read the synopsis before I suggested it. Yeah, well, it's interesting because after we decided to read it and I was ordering my copy, I read the synopsis and to your point about the fact that it's like a story through Sarah's eyes about Emily, I think when I read the synopsis, I assumed wrongfully, obviously, that the book was like told from the point of view of a teenage girl who is experiencing an eating disorder herself. And then when I got it and I started reading it, I was like, huh, this is really interesting sort of structurally from a writing perspective. As listeners know, I'm halfway through my MFA. And so I spent a lot of time, you know, being like, whose story is this? Like in mm-hmm. my classes, like, like, why are we choosing this character versus this character? And so that's something that I am more attuned to now when I read. And it was interesting to me that like, that's the approach that the author took, because I wonder if it's, of course, not to like project, but I'm like, maybe this is something that she had an experience with and she wasn't like ready to talk about it in a firsthand yeah. way. And like, maybe it, it just felt different to her to be able to write it about another person. And I also thought it was interesting that she chose to write it about such a young character um, because Emily's 12 years old and not to say, of course, that eating disorders don't happen in children who are 12 or even younger. But I do think that sort of we see it more commonly in pop culture, I think, in kids that are actually closer to Sarah's age. And so it was interesting that Sarah, this 15 year old, seems, you know, first of all, as you said, like she's saying all of these things that she has no idea are triggering for Emily. Mm-hmm. I was paying a lot of attention to that. I was very like, I was just marking off in my margin all the times that somebody said something to or around Emily that I was like, oh, you don't get this, but this is this is driving her crazy. Like mm-hmm. you, you cannot say this in front of her. This is why, like, this is why she can't get out from under these heavy feelings that she's having about food in her body. But it, it just was so interesting to me that the author chose to have this older girl who was observing a younger girl dealing with this issue. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It, and I think this is a, like you said, this is a conversation we have so much now of like, who deserves to tell this story and this, you know, the idea of own voices. I don't think that this is a book that could ever be published now that, you know, I think that we expect authors, you know, to give so much of themselves, so much of their identity, which I, in my book, I definitely did. And in my future books, I have also. Um, And that's kind of like, what we're expected to do now is put our trauma on their page and discuss it. And like, and that is not the case here <laughs> at all. And yeah, I, I wonder too, like what, what, what led her to write about this? Was it her own experience? Was it just something that she knew about that she wanted to explore? Because it's kind of hard to read what her 
the I'm t- her as in the author Lucy Frank it's kind of hard to read what her um point of view is because you you kind of you want to see that like it's through she's giving her opinions through Sarah's eyes but then Sarah is like so <laughs> she's like contributing to the problems in so many ways you know I really felt for Emily the most in the story and I was frustrated when I was reading because Emily, it feels like sometimes like she is through Sarah's narration, she's like villainized often, or she's like treated as if she's manipulative, you know, but I kept, I kept just feeling like this is again, this is a 12 year old girl dealing with something so hard, so difficult that I as a, in my late teens and my 20s struggled with so much and she's a 12 year old, you know, so I, I felt so much for this character and I was just so angry and frustrated <laughs> with everyone else in the, in the book for not doing what they should have done for her. Yeah. I mean, there were moments that I felt that the author really like nailed what the experience is like to be dealing with what Emily is dealing with. And then there were times where I was like, I'm sorry, what? Like, yes. this is so it's so offensive to people who are inside of this. Like there's one moment toward the end of the book where Sarah says something like it was all about power and Emily had all the power. Yes. Yes. I marked that in my book too. Cause I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> she has no power. What the hell? You know, like I, I can see how, again, if we're telling the story from the outside, then, then sure. I'm sure that people who are, interacting with somebody who they love who's in the middle of an eating disorder they have had that feeling but that is not something that I think is responsible to put on the page that you're then handing to teenagers and expecting this to be like potentially their first maybe even their only interaction with a story about somebody who's managing an eating disorder which is a very serious thing and I guess anytime anytime there's a potential for a book or any piece of content to become a young person's like only touch point about something this serious I do think that there's like an additional level of responsibility and I I don't you know honestly have like a very clear picture of what else was out there in 1995 when this book was published but a line like that to me is really dangerous Mm -hmm. as far as like informing somebody's understanding of eating disorders and and of diet culture in general like you have no power when when you're in the middle of this experience and when you are suffering from an eating disorder it has 110 percent of the power over you and so that was so frustrating because then on the same page or like within the same chapter there's a realization that sarah has about how for emily it's actually all about control and like it's Mm -hmm. not really about the food like she's trying to get control over her life because her family is changing and like she just doesn't understand what's happening with her parents and like that does nail it like yes that for me at least was very true of my own experience and continues to be true of my own ongoing journey with my relationship with food and my body so it's just it it was frustrating because I was like I can't tell if you did any research for this or if this Mm -hmm. is all based on personal experience in which case I of course I'm like sensitive to that but it was frustrating because it just it was really kind of all over the map yeah that last chapter too there's like a joke I I marked it because I was like what the heck Sarah's like trying to get Emily to her parents to be okay with Emily sleeping over at her house and she was like she doesn't eat a lot she says that to everyone and I was just like ah, like so not a joke yeah it's not a joke and I guess that was my that was my frustration with all of the all of the adults in the book it just felt like Sarah was again Sarah is super flawed and the way she handles things is not great but she was like the closest to being able to like 
help her friend, you know? And so, but the adults, Florence, and then I don't remember the dad's name. <laughs> they both were so like, they were so um, focused on their own issues. And again, seeing their, their child is like a burden, you know, or a problem that they needed someone else to fix. And then Sarah's parents, how they just like, send her away, <laughs> you know, send her away for the summer and treat like, you know, they kind and they were, it, it, you know, and I know from reading, I, from reading the next book and then also the way this one ends that they're going to send her back, you know, and kind of just like putting all of this responsibility on this 15 year old girl to solve such a serious problem. It was just so, so infuriating <laughs> reading the adults behaving this way. Yeah. It's weird because it's almost playing on this, like, Mary Poppins trope of like some magical like outsider comes in and changes a family's life for the better Mm -hmm. which I think works really well in sort of like old school stories and we've seen it time and again like the sound of music you know like these these really like classic stories that are problematic in their own right but that's a story that we're all familiar with And there's definitely shades of that in this book because we have Sarah coming in as an outsider. And I do think that like on balance, like she helps the situation. I mean, she goes to the New York Public Library and I loved that idea that like a few days after meeting Emily, she realizes that something is wrong and she is taking her job seriously enough that she realizes that like, okay, I need to figure out how to deal with this responsibly, which seems to be more than Florence has done. Like Florence sort of acknowledges that there's a problem, but like not really and certainly does not want to put name to it and I do think that like Sarah is a friend to Emily in a way that she really needs she certainly didn't have any like advocates in her life that we are aware of who have any like power over her and there are no adults that are really pulling for her in a healthy way and there's one line that I loved and Sarah says to her you can have stupid hair you can be fat or skinny or anything and I won't care you're my friend Emily we're friends but Emily I'm worried about you don't get any skinnier Emily please and of course like removing the whole last line about like don't get any skinnier because Mm -hmm. words like that are very triggering for somebody who's smack in the middle of an eating disorder especially if they don't know it I think just having somebody say to her like you're my friend like talk to me I am your friend and of course like Sarah doesn't really understand the power of her words which is why she's using words like skinny and like not really recognizing what that can do to Emily but I just think that like Sarah came in and and did maybe center Emily in some way and like make her realize that somebody was looking out for her. So I think on balance, she made a difference, but it is, it's like, it's dicey. Yeah, because I feel like it's so inconsistent because she would say something like that to, to her, but then she would also make, I mean, I didn't, I don't, I didn't write down the quotes, but like she would make comments about Florence's weight all the time, like these very like fat phobic comments. And she would make comments about, food, again, I didn't write down the quotes, like food that's healthy or not. And so, so yeah, it was very inconsistent. She was trying to help her, but then so many things she was saying were problematic also. But I had to, I like, it's hard because it's like, number one, this is the nineties, you know, (laughs) the things that were said and accepted then were so different. Not that they were okay, but you know, things that made it into books were different, you know? And then also, again, the 15 year old protagonist who who was like thrown into the situation and was not prepared (laughs) to handle this sort of thing at all so yeah yeah all the conversations about Florence and her weight are really interesting because there seems to be some suspicion on Emily's part that the reason that her parents broke up is because Florence is overweight 
Mm -hmm. I think she actually uses the word obese and she definitely uses the word fat quite liberally. And look, the good news is in 2021, I think as a culture, we're kind of trying to take power away from the word fat. I think we have Mm -hmm. a long way to go, but I do think that there is a movement to sort of neutralize the word fat um, and just make it a description of the way somebody's body is. And it doesn't have to be a, a bad thing or a good thing. Yeah, as it should be. As it should be. But in this book, it's clearly, it clearly has a negative connotation and Emily really blames fatness for like the loss of the family that she knew before and she has a very complicated relationship with her dad she seems to miss him she wants his approval there were times that I that I did feel like she really like wanted him to care more but she's also really afraid of him because her parents are sort of using her as like this pawn because her mom's like we can do this our way or we can do it his way and what she's really talking about there is that her dad like wants to put Emily in treatment, um, which she describes in a really scary way. So you can tell that they've been very threatening with the way that they've discussed treatment, which while a very big deal, like is meant to be ultimately a positive healing experience, it's clearly been described to her as like a terrifying, lonely, dangerous, dark place. So she's afraid of her dad. She's afraid of the way that her dad wants to like help her. She's really afraid of turning out like her mom. Sarah has like very complicated feelings about Florence. She like kind of thinks she's cool. She kind of thinks she's weird. There's this box of like forbidden foods that's over the fridge in a high cabinet that literally has like like a picture of like a snack food with a with a circle around it and a line through it, like a no smoking sign. I feel like Florence is like very much in the 90s, like slim fast culture of like Mm -hmm. this is how you lose weight and this is you know lifestyle changes and like snack wells and all that kind of stuff and I just think that this book what this book I think does do a really good job of showing is like the way that diet culture can really settle itself into a household and how in some ways like these issues really are inherited even if it's not necessarily you know I, I don't personally know like the biological or like genetic factors of these things but I think as far as like the way certain sensibilities and fears and concerns can be inherited just because you're living in the same house as somebody, I do think that this book depicts that like Florence's issues with food while while different than Emily's are definitely like soaking their way into the very fabric of their home. Yeah, definitely makes a connection between what she, you know, that what is it, what is considered acceptable in society of, you know, dieting and dieting is is disordered eating. That's all, you know, that's all it is, but it has a different label that makes it acceptable. So yeah, I did appreciate how the book made the connection between dieting and how it leads to, or how dieting and how it is, it is the same as disordered eating, just, you know, different ends of a spectrum. Going back to the treatment thing though, I, I couldn't tell, I couldn't tell what the I kept trying to trying to figure out like what is the author's perspective. That's like because mm-hmm. I read I it's so hard for me not to read books from that way, right. you know? Um because yeah. it's true that treatment was was it was in the book, the the treatment that her dad talked about, it was discussed as like the very worst thing that could happen to Emily, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was never another side of that was never really shown, you know. Getting right. she she did start to go to therapy and that was seen ultimately is a positive thing but like inpatient treatment it was treated as like the very worst thing that Emily could do it was you know going to be a punishment for her and that bothered me because I think that inpatient treatment or you know any sort of treatment is is very necessary if you have an eating disorder so that yeah it was never like the other side of that was never really shown because Emily I mean 
she's a fictional character. I'm not a, a mental health professional, but like Emily probably would have benefited from that. And at the end of the book, it was kind of just like, well, we're, you're going to go back home and Sarah's going to keep hanging out with you and you'll get better, you know? <laughs> and there was no like clear plan. And like you were saying before, like if this is someone's only their first look into disordered eating into, I think they say, they say anorexia, you know, if this is your first look into that and it's shown that like, you know, treatment is bad. <laughs> you just need a good friend that will be there with you. And that's never like countered. That is, that's very troubling. And that could be very dangerous for someone to read if they have an eating disorder. Yeah, there's been ongoing conversations with a few members of the SSR community over the years about like sort of the responsibility that YA and middle grade authors have to like portray a certain type of morality, right or wrong. Yeah. Um, I'm sure this is something you think about when, when you're writing. And uh, I hear people who say that, like, it's not an author's job. to. Ha- there doesn't need to be a moral to every story, even if it is yeah. intended for young people. I get all of that. And I, I'm on board with that. And I'm on board with people who say to me, like, I love when there's like a, a poorly behaved kid. Like I, I always am drawn to that character and this is how kids actually behave. Like nobody's saying that this kid is an example. Like just enjoy the book. Like enjoy that this kid is a very real character. I can get on board with that. I think where I struggle is the fact that like this is a very real and dangerous health issue. Um, mm-hmm. And in 1995, when these issues were talked about even less than they are now, it does matter where an author seems to come down on a topic like treatment for an eating disorder. And I think to your point, it's not even that like I was looking for the conclusion to be that Emily goes to treatment and like has a great experience. But I just think the fact that there was, we didn't get the other side. I think the way that you put that is really, is really, I think that's really well put because I think just to have somebody, some character at some point in the book sit Emily down and be like, oh, like that's what you thought inpatient treatment is. It's not like that at all. Like, let me tell you what it actually is like. Just so that that's there somewhere so that readers can find it, even if it's not the ultimate like moral conclusion of the story. I think that that's really important in a book like this. Yeah, it didn't need to be prescriptive, you know, and I I didn't need necessarily a different ending. But yeah, just more, (laughs) more, more, (laughs) more options there. And, you know, I, to what you were saying, like, I love a morally ambiguous character. I love messy girls that make bad choices you know that's the those are the kind of main characters that I write my they're not perfect I don't expect any character or any book to be perfect yeah I think that we do have a responsibility (laughs) writing for young people and especially if you're handling any sort of heavy topic to just to just think of a reader and how it affects that reader but I know that it wasn't handled in the same way in the 90s that it were expected to handle things now and I think it's good that we are pushed as authors to really think about our our full audience and how our books affect them I think it's good that is that way now but yeah it was very it's a very strange experience (laughs) to read this book and know that there's no way no way that it could ever be handled this way now yeah and I'll echo what you said about the ending the ending was like super weird at first I thought it was kind of cool like I liked that Sarah took Emily back to her house I felt like that did demonstrate to me that like Sarah was really aware that she was that that a 
big part of what Emily was dealing with was an unhealthy, toxic environment. I appreciated that she saw that removing her from that environment would at least bring her some peace mentally and that maybe that would be a better place from which to figure out what to do next with her eating disorder. But then like these four adults, two sets of parents sort of like seem to mutually decide after like a little bit of argument over where the girls are going to sleep that like there needs to be no further action taken about Emily's health. Like yeah, Sarah gets to stand up to the adults and basically be like you guys are talking about Emily and nobody's actually doing anything which like true and I appreciate that and Emily has a moment where she kind of stands up for herself too but in the end we don't really know like if anybody's going to be paying any extra special attention now that it's clear that Emily is struggling with something more serious than perhaps has been discussed before the last line of the book is the first thing we've got to do, we've got to get through breakfast. Yeah. And it's like, oh, if it were that simple. Yeah. <laughs> like that would have saved me a lot of trouble if it were that simple. It was just super weird. And then there was a line where Emily's like talking about the mirrors in Sarah's house. She says, there's something about the mirrors in your house. For some reason, I don't look quite as fat here as I look at home. Yeah, I was like, is that is everything better now? Is that what they're trying to say? <laughs> like, right. And in that case, are we like co-signing the idea of the like, quote, fat mirror phenomenon, mm -hmm. which is a thing that people talk about and is a, is a joke that I unfortunately have made. And that has been like a way that I've laughed off my own issues over my life. Like, that's not a resolution of Emily's issues. That's not how she's going to be able to move forward in a healthy way. It was just very unclear to me. Like, is Emily just going to hang out at Sarah's house indefinitely? And like, Sarah's parents will feed her better or differently and she'll look in the mirror and feel better about herself. The ending was just super ambiguous, far too ambiguous for an issue of this magnitude. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of think of like, I can appreciate that Sarah was empowered at the end. Yeah. Totally. You know, that, that's something you want to see in literature for kids um, and teens. So I'm like, is that, that's a positive, I guess. <laughs> um, but We're I trying. Agree. We're trying. Yeah, I'm trying. And I wasn't, I was like, oh no, what am I going to, because I just finished reading the book last night and yeah. I was like, oh no, um, what did yeah. I do? <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, I can't just go on there and like trash this book, you know, yeah. but and it's, it um, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I just, I, so that's a positive, I guess I can find, but yeah. it was just, so as an adult reading it, it was just so troubling to see these four parents just behaving so badly, you know, um, that was really, really, really hard for me to read. And I'm like, was that the author's intention? Was she trying to, you know, was she, I'm sure it was, you know? Well, I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but this is sort of like the SSR signature question. So I have to yeah. ask. <laughs> So on the whole, did I am an artichoke? That's a hard word to say. On the whole, did I am an artichoke by Lucy Frank hold up to your memories of reading it as a kid or did it perhaps let you down in some way? <laughs> it totally let me down. I thought it was a romance. <laughs> I don't know. That's why I suggested it. So yes, I think I was thinking of the Brussels sprouts book when I suggested it. So yes, it totally let me down. I kind of wish I had never reread it because the title is so good. I am, yeah. you know, I am an artichoke. I wish I just could have kept that title in my head <laughs> forever instead of reading this very, very triggering, very sad book. 
I'm sorry for putting you through this. Uh, no, I mean, yeah. it, was, it was an interesting read. And I will say if there's one thing positive that I would say, it's that I do think that reading a book like this is a good reminder for people about the power that your words have that you might think are casual, whether it's yes. about food or anything else, like your words that that might be offhand or jokey to you, that might be self-deprecating. You might be quick to make a joke about yourself. You don't know how that is going to trigger or add to somebody else's inner turmoil. And that I, I think because of my own experiences, but also just like being an adult living in the world, like I was able to identify points throughout the story where I was like, ooh, this person really has has no ill intent, but this is this is a thing that's going to be very upsetting for Emily. And it's something that I'm very aware of with food and body image, but I admittedly am maybe not always as aware of it with other things. So I think, yeah, maybe in its lack of sensitivity, that's what it reminded me of. Uh, yeah. So other than this book, which you did not enjoy, what have you really released that you did enjoy and that you would recommend to our listeners? Okay. These are, these are things that I can stand behind. <laughs> My favorite things that I've read lately. Um, I read Firekeeper's Daughter. That is just an incredible YA thriller that came out recently. I could not put it down. <laughs> it's, it's definitely one of the best books I've read in a long time. Um, so I would definitely suggest that. <laughs> and then Blackout. Have you heard of Blackout? But I have heard of Blackout. It's a huge book coming out I had this summer. Ashley Woodfolk on my show. And oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, Ashley Woodfolk, Nicola Yoon, Andy Thomas, Nick Stone, Tiffany D. Jackson. Am I getting? Oh, and, uh, wait, I'm forgetting someone. Danielle Clayton. Yes. I, I think I said all six of them. I think you did um, too. Yeah, I hope so. I read that book last month and it was just a joy. Like I, I so happy all the way through. It's the first time I've ever seen that many black teenagers in a book, just being happy, <laughs> living their lives and no trauma. And it was something that I definitely, it's a book that I needed as a kid. And I'm just so excited that it is coming out soon. I can recommend that to everyone. <laughs> well, I think you're owed, like you need to read like three or four romances now to make up for your like mismatched expectations on this. Yeah. So, <laughs> I hope you do that, but I will include links to both of those recommendations in the show notes for this episode. You also have a book coming up in January. Can you share anything with us about that? Yeah. So on January 4th, I have my companion novel, One True Love. It's a companion novel to Happily Ever Afters, and it follows Lenore, who is one of Tessa's friends in the book. Lenore, I haven't pitched it before, so I should probably get get better at it. You heard it here first, everyone. Yeah. I'm still like in the Happily Ever Afters pitch mode, but I need to get this one down. Um, but yeah, it follows Lenore um, the summer after graduation. Um, she's supposed to be starting at NYU, but she's realizing that this life that she's that she's about to embark on is not what she wants at all. And that's her parents are not cool with that. <laughs> um, so she goes on a Mediterranean cruise um, right after graduation with her family um, and is trying to figure herself out. And she also um, falls in love on this cruise. And it's yeah, I'll be better at pitching it by January. But <laughs> It's a, very, <laughs> it's a very fun book. Um, well, I will include links to your books in the show notes for this episode as well. I'll be waiting very impatiently for January to pick up a copy of the new book. But in the meantime, Elise, I really appreciate you chatting with me. Um, we really, we really got deep. We literally just met an hour ago and I, yeah. I appreciate your vulnerability and your honesty. And I'm, I'm happy that we, uh, Got to explore this particular book together. 
Yeah, I am too. I literally, before I logged on, I told my husband, I'm not going to talk about my past or my eating disorder. And then of course I did. <laughs> because how do you even like, yeah. yeah, how do you even talk about this book without that? And also I'm, I don't know, I think it's, I think it's good to, as someone because, you know, you stay in recovery forever, you know, you're always in recovery, but it, as someone who's been in a good place with food for a long time, and just, I, I think it's good to talk about it, the journey, because I know there are people that are probably listening or, you know, teens um, that are in the middle of it right now. So there is a, you know, there's a place where you can get where you can read books about very triggering books about it and, and be okay. So I'm glad I'm glad ultimately that we've talked about this book. <laughs> yeah. And listeners, I'll be sure to include some resources in the show notes as well. Um, that might be helpful for anyone who is either dealing with an eating disorder themselves or who is maybe supporting somebody um, or concerned about somebody in their life, because we of course want to make sure that this is a um, hopefully like helpful and ultimately maybe a constructive piece of content for you all to listen to. So Elise, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I hope we get a chance to talk books and writing and all kinds of other things soon. Yes. Thank you. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.